Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your graduate student, uh, pre-doctoral psychology intern, doctoral candidate, uh, co-host, and friend, Brandon Jackson. <laughs> and Katie Gordon. How are you doing this afternoon, Katie? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing pretty good. It's just uh, really kind of rainy and cold here in Fargo. We missed fall. It jumped from 90 to like 50s. Um, so I got to skip my favorite season of the year, so I always look forward to that. And, Wait, uh, you don't like fall? No, it's my favorite season. Oh, I was being oh, oh I understand. Oh, yeah, I, no. I, sorry, sometimes I need it really spelled That's okay. out. It's like, I thought you like. who doesn't like fall? And the problem with me, of course, is I only have one tone of voice, so people miss <laughs> it a little bit when I'm being sarcastic. Well, I've only known you for a long time, That's so right. at this point I should probably be able to understand that. No, how are you doing? Did I ask already? You did, yeah. but that's okay. I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I'm super excited about our guest today. We're going to have Dr. Gina Hiraoka on today, and I know Gina through Twitter, and I don't remember how we first interacted, but I think it's because of overlapping interests in both clinical psychology and Hamilton, so we'll have to talk about some Hamilton and some clinical psychology today. How are you doing today, Gina? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, thank you for being on. It's not too... I don't know if we've gotten to talk about Hamilton too much on the show, or ever, maybe? No, maybe only in passing. Yeah, so I'm excited to have it as a one of our main topics, at least for today. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe an overview for listeners of the things that we want to talk to Gina about today. She has expertise on. Gina works for the Veterans Affairs Hospital System, although all of her opinions are her own and don't reflect that of the system, which I wanted to make sure to mention. And we're going to talk some about her work in that context and then we're also going to talk about the movie crazy rich asians and hamilton and anything that kind of comes up along those themes so thanks for tuning in to hear that stuff yeah we're just going to freestyle it a little bit Mm -hmm. and just see what happens yeah so maybe we'll start off by asking gina could you tell us a little bit about kind of your pathway into clinical psychology and about the type of work you do now sure um so you know actually I first got interested in psychology when I was a teenager. Um, I was watching the 1996 uh, Olympic women's gymnastics team, and I thought about how they must have some type of coach or something that helps them to be able to perform under such pressure. Um, and so initially, you know, growing up, I kind of had the idea of, well, sports psychology could be really cool. Um, and then when I got into college, and I, I took, you know, intro sites, um, and, and I realized, you know, actually, the clinical psychology thing sounds like something that, that I could really see myself doing. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how it got started. Um, in fact, that's, that's one of my, um, my autobiographical essays for internship applications talks about that. Even. So that's, that's how it started. And then in terms of how I ended up, um, working with veterans, you know, that one is a little bit less um, of a direct path. I don't, I don't really know. It just seemed like, well, first of all, so I, I come from a, a 
family that has a long line of veterans. So uh, my grandpa was a World War II veteran, and then my dad got drafted out of the Vietnam War, and then um, now my brother is active duty Army. So I've always been really, you know, I've always viewed um, military and veteran issues as relevant and important. Yeah. And in, in grad school, I, I started to really look towards treating trauma. And so, you know, it just kind of fit perfectly together. Um, address trauma and, and, and work with veterans. Not that that's the only need that veterans have, but obviously um, there, there is a good need there. So. Well, that's great. Thanks for explaining kind of your personal interests and how that, that mixed with your professional interests. What what kind of, could you tell us a little bit about like your typical week? What kind of work or, or what kind of mental health issues are you addressing typically yeah. these days? So I work in um, what we call the PTSD clinical team. Um, so essentially it is a clinic that is there to address combat-related trauma. Um, and so when I was thinking about my week, um, I do three groups. Um, we do evidence-based. So they're not those typical, or like the stereotypical um, combat veteran groups that people think of where people share their war stories. So, you know, we do cognitive processing therapy, we have a CDC-based coping skills group, um, and then I also do a, um, called emotion processing therapy, it's uh, using a CDC and app framework, um, so I also support that group. Um, and then the rest of the time I'm doing individual therapy um, or uh, consultative interviews. And then I'm also involved with the uh, intensive training program, so um, supervising and doing didactic here and there. So definitely not um, a slow-paced job, which is good for me. Oh, it sounds it sounds like you keep very busy doing a lot of a lot of excellent work. So fairly recently, I guess in the field, there's been some discussion about the appropriate treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. We're wondering kind of if you could talk a little bit about some of the components of the treatments you typically use or what you view as most appropriate. Yeah, so I mean, I'm definitely a huge advocate for um, evidence-based practices. So because, you know, we're, I work in a clinic where we are there to treat post-traumatic stress disorder or symptoms consistent with that, um, I'm very much an advocate for um, having the processing therapy prolonged exposure. But then, like I said, also, um, you know, there's, there's a fair number of people who maybe they are struggling with some symptoms related to combat, but then maybe they're also having adjustment problems. Maybe they have been in the military for 20 years, and now they're, they're having to adjust. And so I find that um, helping them with positive flexibility you know, both with CDC and that and, and things like that can, can really help for those kind of difficulties. So, you know, if it's, if it's really the PTSD that we're targeting, um, I'm really going to recommend um, CPT or CE, but of course that's not the only, you know, they don't necessarily just have the luxury of having PTSD, right? You, know, you might have some other difficulties that go along with Okay, so one thing that, you know, uh, you and I have talked a little bit about through Twitter is uh, the idea that one of the tough things about treating post-traumatic stress disorder is that you're often asking people 
to engage in things that can sometimes feel temporarily worse to them, that their anxiety might get worse. How do you how do you talk to people about that and and still try to keep them engaged in treatment? Yeah, so I mean I'm really upfront about it. I'd really like people to know that the the treatment recommendations I'm making are not just based on my own, you know, like gut feeling or anything, but that I'm offering them and recommending some treatments that have been studied um, with a lot of scientific research. And so I, I also really like to emphasize the whole idea of how avoidance is, is a short-term solution, but it, it shouldn't maintain the, the trauma, the thing that really includes the recovery. So I find that being really open about it is, is the most effective course, but also validating. Like recognizing, like, yeah, of course you're not going to want to examine how your thinking um, has been affected by the trauma. Of course you're not going to want to purposely think about the trauma or have those feelings that come from it, and yet we know that, we know through lots and lots of research that until you're, you're willing to do that, um, it is going to be tougher for a while, but ultimately it can be what's going to help you in the long term. So um, I, I, I validate, but I definitely don't sugarcoat because I think that you lose credibility if you make it sound like it's going to be warm and fuzzy and it's just not. I really like that approach. I think that it's... You know, it's consistent with, I think, of medical treatment. Sometimes they come with some serious kind of side effects or other types of issues, even though they might help the underlying problem best versus kind of the shorter-term types of information. And I like how you are very honest with clients about that, like you said, you it's so that they can trust you and, and trust that you're choosing things in their best interest. So thank you for sharing that. That's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do also want to add that, you know, I have seen it change a little bit just even over the last um, five years since I've been working with sessions. But, you know, of course, there's still this um, myth that exists um, that somehow, well, there's a couple myths. One of them is, okay, well, in order for my provider to help me, they have to know exactly what I've been through. Um, you know, and, and I'm a five foot two um, woman who was a gymnast, but definitely does not look like somebody who has been in, you know, any sort of military experience or combat. And so, you know, having to address that and, and really normalizing, like, I know that it seems like the best way for you to address these trauma is for somebody to completely understand everything that you've been through, um, but really it's the avoidance piece that's going to help you. So trying to, to, to build that collaborative idea that you're the expert in what and, and my area of expertise is to really know how to help you to target that avoidance and it. Um, so that's one of the, the myths that I like to address. But then, you know, there's this other one, and, and I, I don't absolutely um, don't want to, you know, speak ill of anyone, but there is still even this myth um, amongst mental health professionals that the best way to address trauma is to keep relaxation or, you know, to keep and so it's very different if, if that's what somebody has got in the past, if that's what somebody is expecting, and then they come to me and I'm like, yeah, yeah we're not, we're not going to do that. 
Mm -hmm. uh, relaxation is not the key to addressing it. So um, that, that's been another pervasiveness that I think can get in the way of really somebody really engaging. That, th these are such great points. I mean, I, I've definitely had some experiences before where there is this idea that you had to have been through the exact same experience before being able to help someone. And that's just problematic because it's hard enough to get sometimes enough providers who are trained to provide the treatment in the first place. If we have to have completely matching experiences, then that makes it even a smaller group. And so the idea that you're going to try to understand them as best as possible and that you care and that you're trained in the right treatments, that that's, that's more important. And also the idea, like you said, that, that frankly, um, for most people it, it, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, lowering the avoidance and giving the tools to do that while in the context of a supportive therapeutic rapport that's a very important approach, even if, like you said, you tell them at the beginning, it, it's going to be tough, but that you believe they can do it. So I, I'm wondering, and is there anything else just kind of about your work or, or PTSD or misconceptions about the treatments or the disorder that you kind of want to touch upon before we switch gears a little bit to talk about Crazy Rich Asians, the movie? Um, I guess that one other thing that I am very pleasantly surprised, not surprised, but um, I mean, in a way, surprised. Um, it, it's good for me to be able to see that um, more people, more veterans are getting on board with the idea that um, PTSD doesn't have to be a life sentence, that with the recommended effective treatment that they can look wise meaningfully in spite of the awful things that they've been through. Um, and that has, again, just changed a little bit over the, the last five years that I've been working with veterans. Um, this idea of, like, you can both have, have been through awful things and still live life without it completely affecting your every, you know, every experience. Um, the fact that, that that idea is taking on is, is really good for me to see. Because, I, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like to, to really be struggling with this, you know, the, the memories and the feelings of, of traumatic events, but then also to be operating under the assumption that no matter how much therapy you go through or how much um, you see your providers, that, that it's going to continue to affect you to the same degree that it is currently. So um, I'm glad to see that shift, but I just like to always throw that out there that it doesn't have to be a life. Yeah, I really appreciate you pointing out that there is a lot of, there's there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful here and that people can overcome some of the mental health struggles that they face with the treatments available and so I I appreciate you pointing that out. Okay. Anything else that we we want to make sure to if there's anything else about your work before we start talking about some of the more the fictional things that we were going to yeah. talk about today. I mean, I think that I really, I, I covered the basics, and I definitely appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about some of these things. Like I said, you know, it, it's something that I, I am exposed to day in and day out, but I don't necessarily get to, to talk about it with other psychologists. Um, oh. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. We appreciate it, too. Yes, absolutely. And, and also, I think that, you know, part of just from, so... 
Twitter is really a mixed experience, <laughs> depending on how you <laughs> to use put it. it. Lightly. Yeah, but one of the things that I, that that you and I have talked about, Gina, that we, that is nice is that you can connect with people from all over the place about similar interests and and similar experiences, and I actually think that can be really helpful. And so I've certainly enjoyed talking to you about those things, and I'm glad that our listeners can hear that too. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually, the other day, um, I don't I don't even remember how it got to that point, but um, Dr. Patty Reeses, who obviously is the, the creator of um, cognitive testing therapy, she responded to something that I said to somebody else, and so it was this weird, like, fangirling <laughs> thing where, you know, in, in the broader context, people are going to be like, why is that a big deal? But, um, you know, for those of us who, who are in the field and, and really know about this sort of thing, it was almost like, you know, a, a regular celebrity had said something. Absolutely. Very <laughs> relatable. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No, I love that. I love yeah. how accessible these figures in in our field have made themselves. And some of them are really in, engaging in those conversations. Yeah. And so I hear you. It is kind of like an amazing moment to see that you're talking about something and then someone chimes in who created the one of the therapies that you do. So, yeah, yeah that's super cool. Okay, well, uh, another topic, and actually this was the thing that kind of got us started on thinking about this episode, uh, recording this episode with you, is that we wanted to talk about the movie Crazy Rich Asians, and Brandon and I saw it, and I I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, no, I thought it was absolutely great. And so what, what were your overall thoughts, Gina, when you saw Crazy Rich Asians? Um, well, so let me start off by saying that initially, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's great to talk about this. And then the doubt started coming in, um, like, oh, can I really talk about this? Um, I'm quote-unquote only half Japanese. Um, but then that, you know, I think that that actually speaks to this idea of um, the, the fact that there are so few mainstream movies that have any sort of Asian representation at all, um, that, you know, you don't necessarily have to fit the exact mold, and there is no exact mold of of the Asian experience, but um, just the idea of, you know, this is, that that movie was, was, it was was funny, Um, it wasn't just that it was, it was a movie about, with Asian characters, but it was like, it was a great movie, Um, and, and I think that it really does, it probably really did resonate with a lot of um, Asian Americans and Asians around the world who are not necessarily used to seeing um, any aspect of Asian culture portrayed you know, on the big screen. Yeah, it seems like that was a lot of the sentiment that this was a big deal. And you had mentioned to me when we were talking about this, uh, kind of like you're saying that there's this idea, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. It, is it pronounced Hapa? Yes. yes. Would you mind talking a little bit about that and, and kind of just expanding on what you were talking about before and, and what that's kind of uh, meant to you? Sure. Um, so Hapa in the Hawaiian language means half. Um, and so it, it has now, it, it has since um, it's So basically it's used to describe um, anyone with um, Asian descent mixed with Anything else. And there's actually a great um, visual book out there by uh, the author named Kip Bobek. Um it, It's called Papa, and he basically just has a bunch of Papas. Um, 
and so it's their picture, and then it, they have written down, like, all of their racial lessons and like that. So, um, I mean, even finding that book, I believe I was in college when it came out, um, that was a huge deal. Like, there's a book, um, and it's, it's also, not only is it visually beautiful, but it's really um, encompassing this idea that there's not just one Asian experience. And in fact, you can still be Asian and not be, quote-unquote, 100% so, um, and, and the reason that I was kind of thinking about this in the context of Crazy Rich Asians is because the, the male um, lead character, Henry Golding, there was some controversy about his costume because he is Pat. He is Papa. Um, and so, you know, I think when, when you're not represented, you don't see your, yourself represented very much um, at all in the movies or whatever, it can be easy to fall into the trap of But they're not really representing you because of X, Y, or Z, but hopefully most, most people can take a step back and just see that the representation in general is a great start. Um, and I don't know, that, but so but this is something that I've been thinking about. And then um, a little while after that, I noticed that um, Chrissy Keegan, who is technically Hoppe, um, she she mentioned something about how it was really great for her daughter to be treated with Asian and then somebody kind of attacked her saying, but you're half white too, why, why aren't you excited about that? And, you know, that just, to me that just says that there's so much more work to go in terms of this idea, but also like, it's a great way to start. Yeah, that, that's a great a great point about um, even Chrissy Teigen. I didn't see that she had expressed that, but then for people to even question that, um, it's that just must be difficult because yeah. it's like expressing experience and then people have something to say about well what about this and what about that and so it's hearing I think people's personal experiences helps that especially people with large platforms like Chrissy Teigen mm -hmm. or Tigan because I think she said that her name is pronounced yes, that she way did. And, and then she went on Jimmy Fallon and said that she doesn't want half of the people to call her Tegan and half to call her Tigan. Well, thank you, because I couldn't follow the conclusion, <laughs> and I didn't, and as you know, I want to make sure I'm saying it correctly, but I was surprised. She was saying she was, like, too polite to correct people, <laughs> so. Okay. Well, and, and actually, I, I, now that you say that, I, I noticed that um, even even with you before we started recording, I do this too, so my last name is Kira Oka, actually, that's, that's the Americanization of it, um, but you know, any approximation with me is, is acceptable because I'm just so used to it being made. And I don't expect people to be able to pronounce it correctly anyway. But, um, yeah, I think, I think anybody with their last name, that, even though her last name is what Norwegian, but, yeah, you just kind of get used to it. Like, yeah, whatever remotely sounds like, it's like we're good. So. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing yeah. that experience because as someone whose name is Katie Gordon and lives in the United States, there aren't really a lot of mispronunciations of my name. So even that's something that I don't, I don't think about. And while I try to be considerate about pronouncing people's names, right, it, it's, it's difficult. And the idea that like being in a position where you're just kind of understand that people are going to try their best and they're right. not going to quite get it. I mean, that's, that's something that I think is worth thinking about. From someone and Brandon Saxon, I imagine is usually pronounced. <laughs> yeah, no one really misses that, but it does remind me 
um, my lab mate all through graduate school, a person who I've known for six years now, her name is Taraki Siaguna. Mm. And for the first three years I knew her, I was saying her first name wrong, but she just never corrected me. And right. now we're on internship together and I've gotten to kind of witness this happen again as she's in a whole new environment and, and I'm with her and just seeing everyone say her name in so many variations and she said that she commented on this other day that she has this experience where she realized now or she started just acknowledging like yep that's right and like then she said it, she caught herself by surprise because she's like wait that's not right that's not what my name actually is yeah. or how it's pronounced but she just like said yeah that's okay and didn't even really realize it that was interesting to hear about yeah mm -hmm. and it seems like so what would you recommend, Gina, I think, for those of us who want to be uh, considerate? What's the the best way, both for clinicians, but just mm -hmm. as people, when we see a name and we're not sure how to pronounce it? Um, well, I mean, I can, I can just speak for both what I, my perceptions is from the perspective of somebody whose last name is, is challenging as well as, you know, the clinician who, I don't know how to pronounce everybody's name either, um, just to ask and do your best. Um, I, I personally don't fault people if they are, are just doing their best. I'm definitely not going to expect somebody, I mean, like I said, I, I, I pronounce it the more American I say to you. So, um, just asking, I think, is, is a nice gesture. Okay. Well, th thank you. I think, I think <laughs> that's really helpful. One of the things that you mentioned while we were talking about well, should we talk about any of the specific content of Crazy Rich Asians? Because I, um, you know, I thought, I mean, I just thought it was a very funny, touching, romantic comedy. And there were certainly some interesting themes in it. But it seemed like a big part of the response is similar to what you said, that it could really be meaningful for people, maybe especially younger people, to see representation on, on screen. But was there anything in particular about the movie that you wanted to talk about? Um, I really liked how they they were trying to address, um, well, first of all, so the, the female, the, you know, how her mom was trying to sort of prepare her for what it was going to be like um, to actually go to the different country. And, and, you know, she was like, well, I speak the language. And it's like that you, you grew up in a, in a culture that is, is very much a mixture now. Um, and, and I think that that can be something that is, is relevant to a lot of Asian Americans. Asians from other countries as well that, you know, even even in instances where it seems like you're, you're fully um, immersed in, you know, the Asian culture, you know, there's, there's going to be other elements of culture that, that come into your life and, and you may not, you know, it's, it's like there's not just one culture. Um, it's hard to just have like a human culture. Um, it, it tends to be a mixture. And, and um, I, I really like to say to emphasize that a little bit. Okay, well, just because her mom, you know, is from was it Singapore, because um, she was from there and, and, and taught her the language and everything, it doesn't necessarily mean that she can know every single aspect of that culture. And that's yeah. okay. Not realistic to accept that. Yeah, it's the culture is more complex, and you're right, that's nice that they were able to portray that, those. I think those things that seem to people have said feels like a real experience in light of a kind of overwhelmingly kind of com comedic movie again with mm -hmm. serious points, but yeah, that that's a good point. And I think it also, at least 
as a clinician or even just as a person is a reminder to not assume these kind of sweeping generalizations about individuals that there are complex ways that we're all impacted by culture. And so to just keep that in mind when you're getting to know an individual and where the, what their perspective is. So one, um, one other thing that you, that you mentioned when we were talking about this is that, um, well, we all love Hamilton, as we talked mm -hmm. about at the beginning, that it also, you mentioned when you were younger, having Pippa Sue from Hamilton, who plays uh, um, Eliza, seeing that could have meant a lot to you. Do you mind saying a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, um, so yeah, keep in mind, like I grew up in the 80s. Um, I also grew up in, in Utah, which is not necessarily the most um, ethnically diverse state. Um, but, you know, even things like having dolls that, that don't have blonde hair or, um, you know, having dolls that, that look a little bit Asian or whatever, like that didn't necessarily happen that much. Um, and so I was just thinking about, you know, had there, even had there been more representation um, at all, that would have been cool. But also just, you know, there's this, this huge um, Hamilton explosion that happened and the, you know, the Eliza character is, is played by somebody who is, who is half Chinese. And um, I don't know, I think that it, I'm, I obviously have to guess to be perspective, but I'm just thinking that that would have been um, a lot, that would have been really helpful. That would have gone a lot way, a long way in helping me to really come to be able to appreciate the being Hapa. You know, as, as bad as it might sound to some people, it, it can be really hard when you don't look like anyone else. Um, and so kind of see, that, you know, sort of like that validation of like, hey, like, I kind of look like her and, and you know, she's like successful and everything. So. Um, that would have been really cool, and I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, it's ended by uh, there are more opportunities like that for, for younger generations. Yeah, it's so interesting to kind of hear um, just about what that experience might have been like, and then, I don't know, the appreciation that other people are getting to have that experience. And then it's, you know, I remember reading a similar story about Rogue One and just how mm -hmm. how people were like going to this movie with their grandparents who were just in awe to see someone who looked and or talked like them um, on a movie. And, and I just think that's, it's powerful to hear about that as someone who, um, you know, a white male, there's, ne there's never been a shortage of people in TV or movie who have looked like me. So I, I, it's not something that I thought about a lot growing up or at all growing up. And so to hear about that experience is just so powerful and, and it, I think just think it's such a positive shift that we have in our media that's being created right now. I agree hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, thank you for sharing those experiences with us, Gina. I think it, it's really good to talk about. Um, we did promise some geeking out about <laughs> Hamilton, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh have you first of all have you seen hamilton neither brendan or i have no. seen it we've only oh. listened to the music Ugh. okay um well not to get too braggy but in 2016 <laughs> when um association of behavior and cognitive therapy had their 50th um annual conference in new york i did get to see hamilton on broadway oh wow 
my favorite conference and my favorite musical. <laughs> All yeah, in one. The stars lined up perfectly, um, so to speak, and, and I was able to, not that I don't appreciate everybody who is involved, but um, I am, I was super excited that um, I got to see some of the original Broadway cast. Um, yeah. That's Chris Jackson. That was, yeah, that, I mean, that was just something that I can't even put in the words. It was That's so worth the, I don't even want to know how much my husband paid for it, but <laughs> it's totally worth it. They're priceless. That, that's, Absolutely. That, well, that's amazing. So had you listened to the music before you saw the show? Yes. Um, so I, I started, I don't even remember when I started listening, but um, by the time that I saw Hamilton, it was, it was to the point where I knew all the words, I could, you know, I could sing the whole uh, recording that's so cool well, um what do you why do you think so many people loved hamilton i mean what is it about that because it's not just there are musicals that are great and there are things that people like but there seem like an almost not complete universal yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. a lot of people just loved it what do you think is so innovative about this that drew people to it I mean, I think, I mean, I, I guess, I would, I would hazard a guess that different people are going to, will have been drawn um, to it for different reasons, but for me, the, the music of it, it was, it was, I mean, there's, there's all these different um, musical styles in it. It's not just hip-hop, but obviously we have the cabinet battles and all that stuff, but then there's some very, like, very classical um, Broadway kind of musical songs on there, which I think um, a, a lot of people really like as well as, you know, there, there's, just, there's just some good fun parts of it as well. Um, and I think that the people who were involved were just at the top of their game and, and were really obviously invested and weren't, weren't willing to just do whatever they thought they could do. They really took their heart and soul into it. And then, you know, I think Part of the appeal of it is that Lin-Manuel Miranda is just like endearing or something. I don't, I don't really, maybe it's the best way to describe it. more than one word, but um, I think it, it all just came together in such a powerful way, and I think the timing of it probably played a role too, um, just given our, the, the timing that we're having in the country with all of these no, I, I think you're right. I mean, he's, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has continued to be just a force of positivity and kind of, like you said, it's not that he's sugarcoating or Pollyannish about serious issues, but he, he's, I'm grateful that we have him right now, <laughs> even with his, you know, daily, of course, every single day he writes like a beautiful tweet in the morning and at night and they're perfect bookends and they're different from one another and I have no idea how he does this stuff but those little things make a difference when you're dealing with stressful times you know and so I agree there's something about him in addition I mean there's his genius and 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 the show but there's also something about him that makes you a lot of people really want to connect with it and I just think that's been an important part of current times yeah and um i guess 
it's like I didn't really actually have the opportunity to appreciate even um, the visuals of Hamilton until I got to see it, although, of course, it definitely caught my eye when I saw him perform it on the, um, the Grammys and the Tony. Um, but just, just the way that it's put together. So all of, all of the cast members are just working their butts off. They're, they're singing, they're dancing, they're costume changes. You know, it's, I think part of the appeal is that the, the people who are performing in it are also highly invested. Um, I think that that really, that shows. And, um, even though by the time I saw it, it was near the, the tail end of, um, so it was near the end of when, let's see, um, Chris Jackson, um, Oak, uh, Jasmine, Jones, um, Anthony Ramos, you know, that was, they were, they were uh, heading out, but like, I did not get that vibe at all, but they were just kind of waiting for their, their contract to end. They were just in it, um, when I saw it as, as when they performed at the time, I thought, so. The dedication of yeah, absolutely. It's a really special show. And I and also kind of like we're talking about, there are controversies kind of regularly in casting decisions and how much does the person fit with who this real person was historically. And Lin-Manuel Miranda really didn't, I mean, he intentionally went for a cast of extremely talented people of color to play these parts that are well-known historical figures. And clearly that didn't hurt the success of the show. And I think that in and of itself is also a powerful and inspiring message about, about this idea of someone having to um, fit because even like, I think about like with Batwoman, there was this controversy about, is she, um, is she a lesbian enough for to be this part of the role? Is she right. this enough? Is she that enough? And so I, I think that that's been another contribution of Hamilton to show what can happen when you have these wonderful people, even if, you know, that's uh, a lot of the true character, the true people that they're representing. They don't, they don't look that the actors don't look like them. So. Right, and I don't think it necessarily would have been as powerful if, if it was, I mean, it's not meant to be a documentary or anything, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that that's part of, of the appeal is the, the characters are exemplified by people who wouldn't have even actually been able to be present during the cabinet battles or those kind of things. You know, I do think that's a powerful statement. And I know Lynn has said something before about how you know, when he looks around New York City now, like, he sees uh, a lot of diversity, and so he wanted to kind of represent New York current day um, on the stage, even though it's obviously about a time when, when diversity was not the, the main focus. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really remarkable. Has, has Hamilton ever come up in any of your therapy sessions with people? Um, well... I never bring it up on my own because mm-hmm. that would take the therapy about me and not them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I did. I did recently use one example though, um, and I'm not that this person probably um, either listening. I don't know, but I was listening to the Hamilton podcast and the person that they had on, who's part of the the touring company, and he was talking about how um, 
he had been really battling with like voice, uh, vocal cord issues and stuff for a long time. And um, he had a panic attack on stage recently, and it was because he felt good. And so I would I tried to use that as an example to help somebody to help illustrate the idea that like part of what happens with panic is the the way that you think about what what's happening in your body. So the panic attack for him was actually um, spurred on by the fact that he his appraisal of the situation was I feel good that, that something must be wrong type of thing. Um, and so I was able to use it there, and then the person was kind of like, oh, you like animals? Yeah, and then we moved on. But, um, I have found some ways like that to kind of bring it in, but not make it about Hamilton, but, you know, still be able to, to further the, the therapy session by illustrating ideas like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Our uh, podcast network that we're on, Geek Therapy, one of the things it talks about is bringing in your interest in therapy, but it's all about the client, of course, is the priority and when it's appropriate. It's, But if you are able to understand some of their interests, it does seem like it could be a valuable way to effectively get your message across mm-hmm. in a context that they understand as appropriate. So I appreciate hearing kind of the thought process for that because I think that for people who are not therapists it's helpful to understand where how we think about these types of issues always prioritizing the client and their needs first right right yes now trust me if my if it were appropriate to talk about Hamilton more at work obviously I would I would try to do it as much as possible but (laughs) (laughs) not not really the the nature of the job so although I'm sure that my co-workers would would argue that I talk about it like in during staff meetings or something a lot. But. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's different. Therapy all the time at work. Right. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's important to have balance. Well, this has been great. Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up the episode? Um, I mean, I nothing nothing's coming to mind for me. I I'm just really appreciate for this opportunity, and um, like I said, it's nice to be able to. to talk with you guys, um, you know, verbally versus just on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Twitter to to bring people together who otherwise may or may not have ever discovered all the similarities. Because I'm sure I could have met you guys at conferences or something, but who knows what, you know, would have have come up would we we have known that Hamilton was a shared interest. It, exactly. I, I am really grateful for that, too, and I'm grateful for hearing your experiences. Um, so thank you. I think one thing I'll mention is that for listeners who are interested in even more Hamilton psychology overlap, there are two links that I'll connect to. We have a Jedi Council blog post about um, if imagining if Hamilton and Burr were seeking some kind of therapy <laughs> to resolve their conflict. That's so we'll link to that. <laughs> Thank you. And then also I have on my, my website, 10 Hamilton quotes for therapists that I pulled from the lyrics. I haven't actually used them in a therapeutic setting, but, um, you know, it's fun to use on a website. Mm-hmm. And the time may come right. <laughs> I don't know. Just in case. And actually, the picture on it, well, I have not seen Hamilton and not on Broadway. The picture is, on that post is because I went to a wedding in New York. It was a little outside of the city, though. But on my way back, on my way to the airport, I was 
near enough that I was like, I'm going to walk over and at least see the marquee. And that's not as good as seeing the show, but I'll do that. So anyway, that was, that's what that picture is from. Um, okay. So any, anything else, Brendan? No, I just want to say thanks so much, Gina, for being on. And I just have to comment too. Have you been on any podcasts before? Because you're absolutely like a natural at it. Exactly. And I think you could have a a career in psychology podcasts <laughs> outside of your already very impressive career treating mental health. Well, I have not, but thank you. I was I was a little worried about that, and I was saying, okay, I'm just going to do the podcast, and then I'm not going to post it in process after because, you know, if I sound really, really stupid, I'll just ask them to edit stuff out, so, which no. I guess behavior, but, um, but thank you for that. That's just good to know. <laughs> No, absolutely. It's been absolutely great. And I think this is a really great conversation. And thank you for being on and thank all of our listeners for listening in. And I second what Brandon said. I was thinking that too. It took us a long time to get uh, to the point where we could communicate as clearly on the podcast. So it's really, it's it's just been great. So thank you so much, Gina. Take care and have a, a wonderful rest of your day. And thanks Can for I your time. Can I say one more thing? Sorry. Of course. Oh, yes, always. I, I already tweeted this, but I would just like to speak out a little bit and say psychologists get the job done okay yes yes oh yes we totally i think that gif tweet that you did with that oh my gosh that was, it was really good yeah. like i tweeted it was tweet of the year material it was very good <laughs> yes <laughs> yes so on, on that note uh take care listeners and we will talk to you next time Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.